Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Holy Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. It's kind of an important, it's a disciplinary text in one way, and in another way, it's a reassurance of the presence of Christ in the midst of his people, and the power of Christ in the midst of his people. So let's look and see what it's explaining to us about our relationship with the Lord and his church. And it says, Jesus said to his disciples, if your brother does something wrong, go and have it out with him, with him alone, between you two. If he listens to you, you have one back your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. The evidence of two or three witnesses is required to sustain any charge. But if he refuses to listen to these, report it to the community. And if he refuses to listen to the church, treat him as a pagan or as a tax collector. Sometimes this is called kind of the excommunication text in Matthew's Gospel. But there's some interesting things about it. Now, first of all, it lets us know that even in the apostolic church there was dissent. That even in the apostolic church there were those who were, had decided to go their own way. And to, um, Jesus is not talking about, you know, financial matters here, or he's not talking about, you know, property arguments or anything like that. He's talking about difficulties within the community of the church and someone who becomes a dissident and uh, steps outside the apostolic kerygma. Then that's who Jesus is referring to. And so that's when he says, you know, if your brother's doing something wrong, then personally tell him so. The whole idea of uh, fraternal correction. That, uh, that doesn't mean that there's a great denunciation or public denunciation, but there's a conversation. Look what you're doing, you know, this, how do you justify this, and so forth. But then Matthew goes on to say, if he listens to you, then there's peace within the community again. The unity of, uh, of the church is restored. And you have made a tremendous contribution, not only to the other person by bringing him back into the truth of the faith, but also you have not alienated him from yourself or from others. But if he won't listen to you, Matthew says, then take one or two others along with you, for the evidence of two or three witnesses is required to sustain any charge. This process of two or three witnesses as necessary comes from the book of Deuteronomy. It mandates, therefore, that there be two or three witnesses in order for your charge to be considered legitimate. Then the two or three witnesses then contribute to this, this whole process of restoring into the unity of the church your brother. But if he refuses to listen, if he becomes contumacious, he refuses to, uh, to even respond when two or three witnesses gather according to the norms of Deuteronomy, then he says, take it to the whole church. In other words, take it to the community. And here we're going to touch soon upon that relationship between Peter and Jesus 
that becomes a, an ecclesial reality. It's one of the arguments, of course, for the Matthew 16, 18, the testimony of Peter, to be seen as something that continues in the church and not something that's just personal to Peter, as so many of the Protestant exegetes um, said for so long when they finally admitted the text was authentic. If he refuses to listen, then take it to the whole community. And if he refuses to listen to the church, then treat him like a pagan or a tax collector. Once again, this is the, uh, this is the old prescriptions in Deuteronomy of the Torah. This is how you, in some way, um, process a person who has dissented and caused disunity within the community, how you process them and get them either to the point of recanting and repenting, or you exclude them from the community. And it's interesting because in the old proclamations of heresy, for instance, to the church, it, it, they're always ended if anyone says this and ends up anathema sit. In other words, let the person be excluded. Let them, they, they are no longer really members of the church. And so if the person refuses to repent, he refuses to be reconciled to, to the truth of the Torah or the prophets, or in this case now coming the new covenant, then, then you have to exclude them from the community because if not, then they corrupt the whole. And of course, we, we know that, that uh, you know, if you have a rotten apple and a bushel of apples, it will rot the rest of the apples and so forth. Those kinds of things have been, those sayings have been around forever. But that's the idea here too, that if the person is a dissident, then the person spreads dissidence and spreads disunity within the church. And in so doing then becomes a danger to the cohesiveness of the church, the unity of the church, the oneness of the church, the, the, the solidarity of the church with Jesus Christ. We see this certainly Christianity has this, has this dynamic within it. How many Christian denominations do we have that have, you know, that, that have left the Catholic Church and then left the major dissidents in the Catholic Church and the multiplication into hundreds at least? And so then Jesus says, I tell you solemnly, whatever you bind on earth shall be considered bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be considered loosed in heaven. And this is where he takes the promise made to Peter, and he makes it an ecclesial promise. He makes it a promise that the church, founded and based on Peter, shares in Peter's binding and loosing. Peter is still the primary governor of the church. He is still the primary source of orthodoxy. He is the primary source of truth and of cohesiveness and of unity within the church. But he exercises not an individual monarchical power. He exercises an ecclesial power. And, uh, and so insofar, for instance, we, we, we know that the bishops in a way derive their, it used to be derived their authority from the Pope, now it's they derive their jud juridical right to exercise that authority from the Pope. And so whichever theological position is correct uh, hasn't really finally been determined. But nevertheless, Peter remains the source of the exercise of the office of bishop. So it is an ecclesial. He is, he is primus inter pares. He is the first among equals as, and, uh, because he too is a bishop. So that what we find then is an extension of the power and the rights of Peter into the ecclesial community through the hierarchy of the church. We ourselves 
you know, know that in many local communities, especially in the last few decades, it's been kind of normative to say, well, you know, the community itself um, as an isolated entity has the, has the same rights as the whole ecclesial community in union with the Pope. And that, that of course, is incorrect. That, of course, is not Catholic. It's, it's, it's part of the Reformation ideology. And it really kind of turns and focuses certain groups of Catholicism into clubs, and uh, which become very exclusive, by the way, and in some ways then stand over and against and in opposition to the whole church, the whole ecclesial community. So when Jesus then extends that bestowal of rights upon Peter, he then makes those rights ecclesial. And once again, to go, to go back to the, to the non-Catholic exegesis of the text of Matthew um, 16, 18 and following, that for a while, as we saw, non-Catholic exegetes, scriptural exegetes would say, well, that's just a, an inauthentic text that's been put back into the Gospels at a later date. Um, and then coming to understand basically through critic textual criticism and linguistic language criticism and so forth, find out, yeah, it is an authentic text, then to isolate it and leave it only personally with Peter um, so that they do not have to deal with the role of Peter in the ecclesial community after the death of the apostle. But here Jesus does exactly that. He takes it and he places it in an ecclesial structure, an ecclesial situation, because Jesus is talking to his apostles when he says this. And so he's talking about the unity of the episcopacy and the papacy as an ecclesial entity, and uh, certainly one that exists far after the death of the original apostles. For I tell you solemnly, Jesus says, I tell you solemnly once again, if two of you on earth agree to ask anything at all, it will be granted to you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three meet in my name, I shall be there with them. And here, here we have a little bit of explaining to do too, because we know that the gospel that we read on Ash Wednesday is the one that tells you, you know, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will hear you. And so it sounds like any kind of public prayer is prescribed. And yet, at the same time, now he's saying if there's a community, if there's two or three gathered together, then he's there with them. So what is that all about? Well, the prescription against public prayer is the prescription against ostentation. Um, it was very, very common in the Israel of, uh, of Jesus' age for the, uh, the Hebrews, for instance, if they gave alms to hire someone to blow a horn so that everyone could turn and watch and see them giving alms and see, you know, how righteous they were. Um, other times the prayers were very demonstrative and still are at some times within the Jewish community, which is their custom, but Jesus said that's not our custom. And uh, so public demonstration of prayer to gain attention to ourselves is something that Jesus prescribes. And yet at the same time, certainly praying as a community is something he encourages. So if in fact two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And I, I think that certainly this is saying that when two or three believers gather together and earnestly for that which is good, pray to the Father, then they are participating in the prayer of Jesus to the Father. 
I think this idea of participation with the Lord is an incredibly important idea in Catholic theology because basically with the rise, a radical rise of individualism, especially during the Renaissance and afterward into the Enlightenment societies and modern society, the individual becomes exalted as being kind of normative and being, being the focus of rights and all of those kinds of things. Before that, it was not so. Before that, the well-being of the community took precedence over the individual rights of a person within it. In our society, an individual can wreck a society claiming it's their right to do so. In the earlier societies, such was not the case. This whole business in the first part of this gospel says, no, if that starts to happen, you correct the person. And that if they, if they go against the norms and so forth of the church, then you correct them. And if you can't correct them, you exclude them. And so then we say, well, does that mean that there is never a legitimacy to revolution? There is never a legitimacy to a great leader of a revolution? After all, Jesus didn't conform to the norms of Jewish society. When he proclaimed the gospel, when he was in walking the earth and preaching the good news, and that's true. On the other hand, Jesus is saying, you can only do that in unity with me because I am the only one who really sees deeply into the nature of a society, into the nature of a community. If you gather around me and you participate in my mission, in my proclamation, in my prayer life, then you will be in right order with the Father. But if you choose to step away from me, if you choose to stand on your own two feet, if you choose to say that I am the sole source of knowledge, I am the sole source of information, and that's very common in modern society. Whatever I believe is absolute, and I don't have to believe it in reference to anything else. It's just that's what I think, so that's true. That is something that the first part of this gospel says, no, you can't do that. You have to, in some way, not be in conformity with Jesus Christ, but in union with Jesus Christ and in harmony with Jesus Christ. There's all sorts of possible variety. And I think if we look back on the Catholic Church and we see, for instance, the great proliferation of religious communities within Catholicism, that's the pursuing of different elements of the one reality. That's a way of individual expression in the midst of the community that is nonetheless in harmony with the community, supportive of the community, and something that in some way, shape, or form helps to build up the body of Christ. It isn't staying out by ourselves and saying, Jesus said this, but I say this. Um, the church says this, but I say this. No, that's not, what this, that's not what the Lord is talking about. And I suppose that in some ways he's saying, don't be ostentatious, like screaming and yelling on street corners and blowing horns and so forth so everyone can see that you're a pious person or a righteous person. Don't, that's, not, that's not what it's all about. But pray, pray with the community because there I am in the midst of it and then you pray in union with me. I think this is one of the fundamental issues of Catholic theology, is that from the very story of creation itself, we are participants in some way, shape, or form in divine being or activity. 
and that therefore we are, mo we are most ourselves, most true to our nature. And when we are in harmony with Jesus Christ and when we are in harmony with the Church of Jesus Christ, that's when we are most ourselves, when we are closer to the sacraments, when we do actually find ways of participation in the life of Christ which is within the Church and within the community of believers. It's a radical difference between ourselves and the dissenting and dissenting Christian ecclesial communities. And so oftentimes we say, oh well, what difference does it make? You know, um, we're all the same, we all worship the same God. Oh, that's not necessarily true. What do we mean we worship the same God? Who is this God that we worship? It is the God of revelation. And if we worship any God that is different from what God tells us he is, then we are not worshiping the same God. And this goes back to the tremendously deep problem of, you know, for so long people tried to discover, the, to understand the nature of God. It was up into the 20th century that this, that this became more and more pursued, more and more complex. Um, more and more obscure, until finally, uh, especially in the person of Joseph Ratzinger, the insight entered into the main dialogue of Catholic theology that we cannot know God, but we can know whatever God tells us of himself. And what he tells us of himself is his word, is logos. And St. John tells us that this word, this logos, this speaking of God about who he is, is the source of the created order. And that he also tells us that this word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so we know, for instance, that what Jesus of Nazareth says is the only authentic revelation of the nature of the divine being and that we cannot go beyond Jesus or around Jesus to discover this. And any attempt to do so will end up either in obfuscation, obscurity, or falsehood. That we must go through him, and in going through him, then and then alone do we discover those attributes and properties of the divine being which God has revealed of himself to us. So when Jesus is talking now in this gospel and saying where two or three are gathered together in my name, I will be with them. So that those who pray authentically together pray in union with Jesus Christ and participate therefore in his prayer to the Father. And so in so doing, our prayers therefore are incorporated into the relationship between the Son and the Father. And our prayers therefore reach the whole divine being through the person of Jesus and through his presence among us in the church, through his sacramental presence to us in the church. For it is also in the sacraments that we encounter the Lord Jesus Christ, not only encounter him but participate in his life somehow and he in ours. And so this created participation from the very beginning is manifest in the sacramental life of the church and as Jesus says in the gospel today, also in the praying church. And then he has this other line, which is a tremendous problem for us. And I tell you solemnly once again, if two, or, or, or if two of you on earth agree to ask anything at all, it will be granted to you by my Father in heaven. How many times have we prayed for something and we have not received it? 
And so the question is then, what does this mean? If Jesus says we're going to receive it and then we pray and we don't receive it, and it seems in our mind that this is an incredibly just request that we make of the Lord from anything as trivial as, Lord, let me win the lottery, to, uh, Lord, heal my husband, my wife, my mother, my father, my child, and so forth. And we all say, well, two or three of us have gathered together, we've prayed for this, and my child is still ill, my mother is still ill, and so on and so forth. I think that there comes here now an element of enormous trust. Because if we pray with the Lord, the Lord will communicate to the Father nothing which is not for the benefit of our salvation. And since we are not privy to that divine component of knowing, that divine insight into the soul of another, that we are therefore not the final arbiters of the wisdom of God or the mercy of God or the goodness of God, God certainly grants healings, and I think probably if we look carefully in most of our lives, we have seen miracles take place in the lives of other people. But we also have to, when we pray with Christ, absolutely trust Christ. And in absolutely trusting him, therefore we commend our brother, our sister, our mother, our father, our husband, our wife, our child, into the merciful hands of the Lord understanding that our physical health is not the sum total of our whole being, that the purpose of our existence is eternal life. And the Lord and the Lord alone knows what we must carry with us in this life in order to arrive in the next. This is certainly, again, contrary to Reformation theology, because Reformation theology does not believe in the participation of the human person in their own salvation, whether it be through activity, through suffering, through prayer, whatever way it is. If, therefore, our particular way, for divine reasons unknown to ourselves, is to suffer in this life, in order that we might enjoy eternal life, it is the wisdom and the goodness and the mercy of God to allow us to bear that cross in this fleeting moment of life in order that for all eternity we may be with him in heaven. This is trust, and especially when he says, you know, any, ask anything, we'll grant it to you. Anything at all, and I'll grant it to you. My Father will grant it to you. Anything at all and written into that that is prayed in union with me that is for the well-being of the eternal life of the person for whom we pray, for the community for whom we pray, or for those objects in the world for whom or for which we pray. This idea of the providence of God is something that we kind of lose a sense of. I remember hearing there was, a, when during one of the dreadful uh, hurricanes in Florida, there was an evangelical minister, and you know, why would God do this to us? And I heard that, I thought to myself, well, look at the world, why wouldn't he do that to us? But the fact of the matter is, it's not a quid pro quo. We don't create the norms, we don't create the values, we don't create the circumstances of divine mercy, of divine salvation and redemption. We participate in the prayer of Jesus Christ and we, and we therefore concede to his greater wisdom and knowledge the good for which we pray. And I think that's an important part of Catholic spiritual life 
you know, I, I think that we know that people who try to use, for instance, try to use the sacrament of penance or try to use different kinds of prayers to coerce God into doing their will, um, and then become frustrated and angry when that doesn't happen, when he doesn't conform to what we want. But we might be wanting something that looks very good to us, but which is personally very destructive to another, that we do not understand in what way that would be so. And I think that we also see in the Gospels that when the Lord does grant some kind of extraordinary favor, he usually does so with a mind of it being not just for the benefit of that person, but what that person is going to be able to do with the gift that he gives. A classic case in point, uh, healing um, Peter's mother-in-law of her fever. And what does she do? She immediately gets up. It enables her to get up and to serve the apostles. I once heard a homily, it was kind of a shocking homily, in which the priest said, you know, you're praying for healing, but you better be prepared for what's asked of you if you get it. And, and I think that while that might have been blunt, um, nevertheless, it was a point to well remember and a point to think about. We are not to determine the outcomes of our prayers. We have our hopes, we have our desires, but those are subsumed in the greater wisdom and the greater knowledge and the greater mercy and the greater goodness of Jesus Christ, who is within our, who is among us when we pray, within us when we participate in his being sacramentally in the church, and who is the one, therefore, who is here to save us, not to cause us pain. But if pain is necessary for our redemption, we will suffer it. And if it is not, then we won't. For whatever happens, happens unto our own salvation and unto the greater glory of God. Let us then today pray over this gospel, realize the complexity of our relationship with the Lord and the simplicity. It all becomes clear if we allow ourselves to be joined in the person of Jesus Christ sacramentally and in prayer. And if we remain faithful and trusting in that relationship, then the world itself will make more sense to us in the end. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Who better?